My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the concept of peace through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Um, why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about peace? Well, hello, Dario. The real reason, the practical reason is that I saw a tweet which was titled Most Peaceful Countries in the World, and it had an awful lot of Western countries in the top 20, top 30. And that made me interested in seeing where these data come from, what it was based on. Because, as listeners by now will know, I am very skeptical about the peaceful nature of the West, specifically towards the rest of the world. And as it turned out, um, this tweet actually hid a lot of data into one simplified list, which then, according to me, um, reinforces the Western bubble. And it's useful to talk about that. And what are the facts? Peace is a concept that encompasses various dimensions, but at its core, it refers to the state of harmony, absence of conflict, the presence of tranquility and stability. Peace can exist at different levels, ranging from personal relationships to local communities, nations, and even global interactions. In a social sense, peace is commonly used to mean a lack of conflict, such as war, and freedom from fear of violence between individuals or groups. A prominent peace researcher, Johann Galtung, coined the terms positive and negative peace. His positive peace focuses on addressing the root causes of conflicts, promoting justice and equality, uh, and creating a just and sustainable society. Negative peace, on the other hand, is concerned with the absence of violence and direct conflicts. What is the bubble? So when we talk about the bubble, and as I just read out in the fact sheet, there's a lot of different meanings of peace uh, and peacefulness. I mean, there's a lot of terms floating around. We will see that in a second when we talk uh, in more detail about the, the tweet um, that kind of sparked this entire conversation. Um, but when we talk about peace in terms of international relations, what do we mean? Is it the absence of conflict? Is it um, an inner an inner peace within world leaders? Uh, is it good friendships between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin? What is peace in international relations? Well, this is a very good example of a very complex term and complex in the sense of there are many different facets to it. And there is no real one answer to your question, right? Because it, uh, it depends on who's speaking within one co what context. Uh, we can have in international relations a very peaceful country internally where people get along lovely wonderfully together sing kumbaya together um, do not have any crime any violence internally but it can be very aggressive towards their neighbors towards the outside world so when it comes to foreign policy and when it comes to international relations from a practical sense what we mostly care about is how do countries behave in westphalian terms do they actually aggressively try to impose their will on others through the through violence or the threat of violence by going to war or threatening to go to war or don't they 
And uh, from an IR, international relations perspective, we would call a country peaceful if they actually don't threaten war towards others, towards their surroundings. Unfortunately, in our day-to-day -day conversation, peace is also very much related to um, attitudes, um, to internal behavior. Uh, and that's why we can have a tweet like the one that I saw, where all of that gets conflated into one and really creates a very strange picture of international relations, one that is not true to reality, to practical um, affairs that we observe day to day. Um, if I if I understand you correctly here, um, so the IR definition of peace could be summarized as not using hard power. So because so you, you mentioned, I mean, not waging war and not threatening war, I would include here no court uh, operations, no destabilizing other 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 uh, countries. So can we summarize it under the absence of the usage of hard power? At an international relations level, yes. At a foreign policy level, yes. That's the way uh, one should go about it. And you're right, I mean, that's why violence is probably a better word than war when it comes to peace or not, uh, because war would indicate armies crossing the border, but you're absolutely right that there are loads of ways to threaten violence that have nothing to do with the army actually crossing the border. You can exactly uh, have covert operations, you can support rebels within a foreign territory. Uh, the question is, is a country engaged in that kind of behavior? Are they threatening organized violence in other countries? Are they engaged in organized violence in other countries or not? And if the answer is no, then we could label them as peaceful. That makes sense within an IR perspective. And so kind of tying this all back to the tweet you saw by the Global Index, um, here we have a listing of the most peaceful countries in the world, and it goes all the way down to, I think, number 163, which uh, is the last one is Afghanistan, for the ones wondering. And the first countries are mostly Western um, except uh, except Singapore, um, which beautifully fits into the Western bubble, into the theme of this podcast. Why are Western countries perceiving themselves and are perceived to be high on that on that list in general? So not only on the specific list of the Global Index, but in general, why are Western countries perceived to be peaceful? Well, maybe it's, it's useful to first point out that uh, this Global Peace Index is created by the Institute for Economics and Peace, and there's a good doses of Western bubble thinking clearly inherent into the ones who created this list. Um, we typically think in the West of ourselves as peaceful because of this label democratic that we give to ourselves, right? Because we are politically democratic systems, and that means that we associate our country directly with ourselves. And with that, I mean that our country represents us individually. And we typically, I mean, there might be exceptions, but most people wake up in the morning thinking of themselves as a peaceful person and they project that onto their democratic society. And they say, we, if I am peaceful, then my society, which is democratic and a government that represents that society, will also be peaceful because we're, in the end, good people. We just want to have the best. We want to make a living. We want to have a job. We want to have children. And beyond that, we don't mean any harm to anyone else. That's how we perceive ourselves. Contrasted with 
how we in Western countries perceive authoritarian regimes, totalitarian regimes, where there is some evil dictator who just wants to commit horrendous acts on the world and who doesn't seem to care about basic morality. That's the sort of the bipolar contrast that we create about the world in, in the West. We, individually, peaceful countries versus an almost anonymous evildoer who is on top of the regime in an authoritarian regime. I think this is best summarized through the democratic peace theory. Um, so to the listeners who don't know, um, the democratic peace theory basically states that um, democracies, uh, so once a country is a, is a democracy, democracy vaguely defined here, they don't go to war as much um, with other democracies, I should say, I should add. Uh, but this is already kind of the confusion, because when I first heard about the democratic peace theory, not necessarily as a theory, but I first got introduced to this at the age of 15. Um, and it kind of, it's natural, right? As you explained, on the individual level, it makes a lot of sense is that, oh, we are, we are not aggressive people um, and we are democracy and being a democracy is very good. And of course, in democracies, we never vote to go to war with other people um, or with other countries. So yes, this makes sense that democracies are the most peaceful countries out there. Well, then I entered university, then there was already this bit of an exception. Okay, yes, democracies don't go to war with other democracies. So that was, you know, already kind of the first limitation to that theory. And then uh, another year of university passes and it kind of says, well, yes, democracies don't go to war with other democracies. However, they are as a whole a bit more aggressive towards non-democracies. And suddenly this theory starts crumbling down. And I think that it, it perfectly symbolizes that attitude within the West is that we are peaceful because we're democracies. I very much went through that process myself. Yes, it, it's a narrative that feels very comforting, um, but it's also horribly simplistic because it suggests that this going to war is a rational process and that it is um, rationally not in your individual interest to go to war. And uh, therefore, you just basically the idea is you want to trade, you want to um, have positive relations with the with your surroundings, and because that allows you to grow economically, to grow culturally, and there is no benefit from actually organized violence. But we know that societies, whether they're democratic or not, have loads of um, underlying psychological, sociological tendencies that lead to demand for war, that leads to the possibility of war, that make war beneficial to those who have to make the decision. And so there are very few people who walk around this planet saying, I like war. Most people, if you ask them, what do you desire for the world? They will say, I want peace. But then when you start asking, hey, how about, um, are you comfortable with um, factor A or factor B happening in the world. No, 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 I'm not comfortable with that. Are you comfortable with um, women's rights in that country? No, I'm not comfortable with that. Are you comfortable with uh, Sharia law in that country? No, I'm not comfortable with that. And now you start creating an environment in which war can actually occur because all of a sudden you're saying, yes, I want peace in a world where everyone behaves like me. But the moment someone doesn't behave like me, that is the moment that I am actually more open 
to the possibility of changing that society, to changing the society I don't like, to changing the customs in those other countries. Um, I want to go after Osama bin Laden and therefore I'm okay with invading uh, Afghanistan. I want to go after Saddam Hussein because he's an evil dictator. Therefore, I'm, I'm all right with invading Iraq. That's where you create the circumstances where we as good, peaceful, kind people are happy to actually allow our leaders to go to war. And we do that all the time in democratic societies. I mean, which kind of ties into that notion of positive and negative peace uh, by Galtung. Is that, oh, you know, you have this idea of positive peace and, you know, there's certain attitudes involved. Institutions are important. Structures are important. You know, that will create sustainable and peaceful societies. And obviously you would want this type of positive peace anywhere in the world, especially in these countries where, according to yourself, well, that's not what I envision as positive peace. So because it's not like what I experience on a daily basis. So maybe they need a bit help with their positive peace. Exactly. And that, that's, that becomes much more blatant the moment you walk around really being full of yourself, right? The moment you see yourself as the shiny template for the rest of the world. You say, hey, look at how good I have it here. Now the rest of the world should follow my lead, should follow my advice. You open up uh, the door to that kind of aggressive intervention in other countries. If you're modest and humble about who you are and you as a society, it's much less likely that you feel you have a position to impose your will or to impose your attitudes onto others. Humility, however, is not one of the things that the West is particularly known for, obviously. So this sounds like a very qualitative uh, approach to peace. However, when we then look at the index um, fr from that from that infamous tweet by now, um, it surely has to be difficult to quantify. Uh, well, what we just talked about because it's so difficult to to already qualify it. So how do we quantify it for an index like this? Well, this is where the problem comes in uh, with this in with this index that. Uh, if you look at the methodology, um, how do they get, well, maybe we should read the first, the, the top 10 of countries just to give the listeners an idea of who's in the top 10. So this would go Iceland, Denmark, Ireland, New Zealand, Austria, Singapore, Portugal, Slovenia, Japan, and Switzerland. That would be the top 10 of most peaceful countries in the world. If you then look at the methodology, they use an awful lot of variables with, by the way, a lot of possible endogeneity between those variables, one affecting the other. Um, but those variables are not simply, did your country attack another country? Did your country invade another country? Did your country sponsor covert operations in another country? That international relations perspective that we mentioned earlier on. Um, these variables that they look at are mostly about the inner makeup of the society itself. Is the society internally peaceful? Whether a society is internally peaceful, as I said already, is completely different from whether that society actually behaves aggressively, warmongers on the global stage. And so if you look at Western countries, typically you will have a very high score for internal peace. Um, Spain, Germany, the Netherlands, you walk around Amsterdam or Madrid or Berlin and what you see is a peaceful society. You people who are relatively kind to each other, they don't have to worry about shooting at each other. There is no organized violence in the streets. These are peaceful countries internally. 
But of course that says nothing about the way that the Netherlands behaves externally towards the rest of the world. And that's where a measure like this goes wrong because it conflates indicators that are about its own domestic society with indicators that are about its behavior towards the rest. So, so let's talk about some of these countries. Um, I mean, you, you already mentioned um, one of them, uh, the, the Netherlands. The Netherlands is ranked 16th in, in this ranking. Um, are you happy with that as a fellow Dutchman yourself? No, so if, if there had been two different indicators, right? One, which is, is the Netherlands a peaceful country internally? Is Amsterdam a peaceful place to live? Uh, I'm all for the Netherlands being a 16th, whatever. That's fine. Amsterdam is a lovely, peaceful city in general. There's a bit of violence once in a while because of organized crime, but nothing too serious. Um, so for that, I would be fine. But at the global stage, the Netherlands is one of the most aggressive warmongering countries you can imagine. They have been involved in almost every conflict over the past 20 years you uh, will have heard of. Even now on their uh, own website, the list of countries where they have military operations. Let me quote, uh, this is from the Dutch Ministry of Defense. The Netherlands Armed Forces are taking part in several major and minor missions throughout the world. And here we go. Iraq, Somalia, Lithuania, Romania, Bahrain, Strait of Hormuz, Gaza Strip, Israel, Syria under Andov, Kosovo, Lebanon, Syria and Israel under UNTSO, um, Middle East, Libya, Mali, Somalia. Those are the different types of operations that Netherlands currently in 2023 is involved in. Now, they were involved um, with um, Iraq before, they were involved with Afghanistan before, uh, they've been involved uh, with Syria before, they've been involved in the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime. The list is painful to read for a small country like the Netherlands. The, the political reasons for this is that the Netherlands is... Uh, geopolitically very close to the United States. And when the United States asks or says jump, the, the Netherlands ask how high, right? They want to please the Pentagon. They want to please Washington. And as a result, the Netherlands has been a militarily incredibly aggressive country worldwide. Even if you take into account the fact that maybe half of the list I mentioned are UN sponsored and um, are, are kind of seen as peacekeeping missions, even then, those kinds of missions are still missions where the Dutch are militarily involved in the well-being of other countries. They are aggressive on the world stage. And you can't call that a peaceful country. Yeah, but wouldn't you say, I mean, for example, in, in, in Iraq, I, I happen to know that because the, the, the German military is, is present there as well. Those are usually training missions where, where they train local police officers or the local military, you know, to kind of strengthen the country. Wouldn't you say that that's a, being a force for good, being a force for peace in the world? Well, you can have that conversation about every individual operation, right? Um, these are, again, complex operations. This is not the Netherlands sort of stealing oil from Iraq or anything like that. At least not that we know of. At least that we not know of, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And then you don't know what Shell is up to over there. But um, the on the surface, this is not the Netherlands being a conqueror in Iraq. However, so, so at any individual level, from any individual mission's perspective, you can have a conversation about that and you can. But if you look at the bigger picture, 
you look at how the Netherlands overall over the past 20-25 years behaves, it is using its military continuously in non-objective conflicts. And with non-objective, I mean no one where the Netherlands clearly takes the side of good versus evil, clearly takes the side of imposing peace and, and, and trying to stop, I don't know, genocide. If, if the Netherlands was active in stopping genocide, that would be a completely different conversation. But this is the Netherlands having geopolitical interests, sending military troops, military personnel, or police training, or anything like that across the globe in order to defend its very specific agenda. If China were to do that, if China were to send um, its its specialist military specialists to, let's say, I don't know, Greece or Portugal or Spain, the Netherlands would be outraged. Well, why, what are you doing training the Spanish or the Portuguese or the Greek? Um, but the Netherlands doing it to Iraq or to Syria is apparently okay. And we completely ignore the fact that the Netherlands was an active party in creating the violence in Syria and in Iraq and in Afghanistan in the first place. And another country on this list um, that simply confused me because you have, you know, you in the first 20 countries, you have the kind of the club of Europeans and a few outliers. You have Finland, the Czech Republic, Canada, Canada um, Slovenia, Portugal, and so on. However, then there's one European country that isn't doing so well, and that's France. Um, and here I'm, I'm, I'm very interested about, and we, we will talk about the methodology of this, of this report uh, in, in a few minutes, but France is in position 67 behind Armenia, um, who is currently involved in a, in a well, active war, I don't want to say, but in, in a kerfuffle, let's call it that, with Azerbaijan. Um, and so, so this, it's very interesting to see that France is all the way back there, maybe because of the protests that we have seen in the past year? Yeah, well, keep in mind that this is the index for 2023, which means that the data come from 2022. Um, it shows the, the problem with an index like that. You have to ask yourself, what does this actually show, this index? What are we talking about? And that's why I argued before for disaggregating an index like that. You want to look at internal peace, as in how much violence is there in the streets? Um that is a very different question from how does the country behave externally. And France has the problem that they both are relatively aggressive externally, um, Mali and elsewhere, and at the same time they are, uh, they, they are facing internal domestic problems that we've all witnessed over the past year. And so France is sort of is, is, is the middle of the road in that sense. They're not the worst of the worst, but they're also not the best because of those different factors. But in the end, the fact that they're, what was it, 67, that they are around that place is a completely meaningless observation. It gives us no real valuable understanding of France because there are just too many factors that this tries to cover. But then uh, Canada is, is, is in 11th position. Uh, Canada seems to be relatively stable and peaceful. Well, and, 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 and that's, again, where, where my problem comes in. That's the overweighting in this, in this index of internal affairs. Um, Canada is a peaceful country internally, obviously. It's, it's, it's a kinder version internally, if you like, of the United States. So, you know, the, the, there is less violence, less crime than in the United States. Um, fewer 
tensions between groups, it is a generally very relaxed, pleasant country to live in. But if you then look at their foreign policy activity, and this is again from their own government website, you actually have a map that they created helpfully for us of all the places where they are active militarily. And it is a very, very long list, some of which can easily be dismissed as just, oh, this is UN peacekeeping operations, which, by the way, isn't as objectively righteous as it might sound, but okay. Uh, but others are clearly geopolitical imposition, are clearly following the big brother from down south, the United States again, just like what the Netherlands does, following US geopolitical um, strategy. Canada on the global stage is not in any way a peaceful country. And this index by weighting internal affairs more than external affairs puts it very high on in that list on place 11, whereas it really should be much lower down when it comes to how does it behave towards the rest of the world. See, I mean, a country, and again, this index is about the year two, 2022, a country with relative internal stability, um, depending on what you define as internal, uh, for this country is Israel. Um, so here you have relatively, uh, living in Tel Aviv is, is very nice. Um, I mean, yes, there are sometimes tensions in Jerusalem, but overall in Israel, living living in Israel as an Israeli citizen uh, is, is, a, is a very nice thing. However, they are in position 143. And I assume that is because of their relatively aggressive outgoing foreign policy um, in the region. Um, so there's there's a clear you know conflict happening uh, with Iran. Um, then there is clear activities in Syria. And again, this is the question, how do you define internal and external here with Israel and Palestine? Um, so you have all of this. And so, I mean, I've based on a feeling, you would say, okay, Israel is rightly placed all the way back there. Um, but at the same time, I mean, is it is it so much more aggressive than the Netherlands, for example? Well, I mean, at a foreign policy level, um, Israel is not necessarily militarily active in more countries than the Netherlands, because the Netherlands, as we said, is very active abroad. Uh, but Israel does so kind of more blatantly when they are active, right? When it comes to fighting Hezbollah or fighting Iran, um, bombing places in Syria. That, that is the kind of Israel does its thing without any regard for international conventions in that sense. The, the reason why it is um, maybe overall also quite low down is, is, is because of the way that they've defined what is Israel and what isn't Israel, right? If you were just looking at Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv is a perfectly calm and nice city to live in. If you take broader Israel and if you look at the settlements and all that, it becomes a completely different story. Uh, this then leads to all the sensitivities about where does Israel stop and where does where does Palestine begin, um, which is increasingly an almost antiquated question because Palestine is basically slowly erased from the map, right? So in that sense, if you take broader Israel, then of course you can understand why Israel is so low down, even internally. But compared to someone... How much sense does it make? But again, that's the whole problem of, of a 
index like this and uh, it, it is actually meaningless because it is too many factors that are not necessarily related to each other and we have no idea what it actually tells us yeah and i mean just because talking about listing of this when there are bigger countries involved let's talk about the the elephant or the elephants in the room uh because meaningless countries like you know, like the Netherlands and Canada. I mean, as you said, they really just, they, they asked how high when the United States says jump. And the United States, interestingly, is placed in position 131, again, out of 163. So also very far down. Did that surprise you going, going into this index, considering that all of the other Western countries are listed rather high? Not really. This would have surprised me maybe 30 years ago, and I would expect that uh, 30 years ago they were much higher up. Uh, not because their external behavior has changed a lot, but internally the United States is facing very significant issues when it comes to violence. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the indicators that this report uses is uh, how many people are incarcerated. The United States has... Uh, the highest number of people in jail in the whole world. Um, not as a percentage of population, but uh, in absolute numbers it does. Um, it has, what is it, about 400 million small arms are circulating in the United States, more than there are people living in the United States. Uh, the number of the, the crime rate, the murder rate, has been consistently high in the United States. Um, the continuous war between the police and um, sometimes it seems the U.S. population, right? There are there's these internal struggles within the United States that push the U.S. down in these rankings internally. Now, when it comes to external behavior, it should be all the way down, right? The United States is is together with maybe one or two other countries by far the most aggressive nation in foreign policy starting most wars, most responsible for bloodshed, most responsible for victims. Um, but this, the, 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 they, they get a little bit saved because internally they're still not as bad as some others. But of course, the United States is no Sweden, it's no Switzerland, uh, it's no Iceland. The United States internally is facing these issues and that means that it's doing quite badly. So let's talk about Russia, because Russia internally, I mean, always... Difficult to say what is internal stability, what is internal peace. Um, but Russia is in position 158. So in the company of Afghanistan, Somalia, Syria, Mali, Iraq. Um, I mean, yes, Russia has started that uh, that war against Ukraine in the last year. So that is uh, surely high, high, high up in the ranking. And then it's other activities uh, in the region. So maybe think about Georgia, think about Azerbaijan. Which I would say, yeah, you can put that up there with the United States. I mean, the United States hasn't voluntarily started a major war in the last 20 years. Um, but, you know, on a foreign policy level, I would say they are on equal footing, theoretically. Yeah, the annexation of Crimea, and the um, uh, aggressive stance in Syria, they were a major player in Syria. At that, at that foreign policy level, it, it makes sense that, that Russia is seen as an, an aggressive player. Um, not responsible for as much, much bloodshed as some Western nations, but certainly very, very aggressive militarily and definitely not a peaceful nation in any way, even if you take Ukraine out of the equation. 
internally though it's a slightly different story right it, it, it definitely i mean internally i mean well the nature of authoritarian uh, governments there's a lot more control over the over over the population but you wouldn't say that there are scenes as you see them for example in france with you know in very intense social unrests and protests um once in a while kind of coming up and and then escalating into very intense protests this goes back again to what do you actually measure? Do you measure, measure the authoritarian nature of a country? Because, of course, Russia is more authoritarian than France. Or actually, do you measure the, the actual violence in the streets, the lack of peacefulness in the streets? Uh, in, in, in that sense, I mean, Russia does have problems with some separatist groups within its territory, especially to the south. But... It is very strange that Russia gets put that low down um, at a domestic level um, because it has been relatively stable. It has not been democratic. It has not been. There is a strong authoritarian aspect to it. There is a high prison population, but that still wouldn't warrant it being pushed down that much. However, it very much fits into this Western bubble approach, right? So after we've now pointed out some inconsistencies within this index, um, let's actually look into the methodology. And this is already my first criticism in case the authors of this report are listening. The fact that the methodology is on page 75, but the, the list of countries is on, on page 10 and 11 is a little bit outrageous to me. Um, and I think after looking into the methodology, I know why they're trying to hide it. Uh, because it's, um, yeah... It's it's uh, it's not very stable. So first of all, the the entire methodology is based on peace as the notion of negative peace. So it's really just the absence, um, well, of violence and the fear of violence, which that explains, I would say, the some of the some of the rankings a little bit. Even though they, they, they you're absolutely right that they say that, but then if you look at the actual indicators that they take up, it moves into positive peace territory, right? Which makes it even more complex. So, as a general rule, when you want when you use statistics, you want to have statistics that are as clear and as straightforward as possible. And the more variables you put into those statistics, into that index the less useful the index typically becomes because it is up for debate how to use one thing or another. And here, they are already starting to use uh, aspects such as political terror skill, for example, which is uh, or level of perceived criminality in society, which are very soft indicators because this is perceived criminality in society, not hard crime. Um, there are loads of issues that move into positive peace thinking. Now... By creating such a complex index, which is broadly divided into three pillars. One is ongoing domestic and internal conflict. The second one is societal safety and security. And the third one is militarization. And then each of these columns has a number of different complex data points that get put into uh, the overall results you actually really muddy the waters. It becomes very, very difficult to know what you're actually saying. Uh, I would even argue, by the way, there should be a fourth pillar because ongoing domestic conflict is very different from international conflict, right? You could have a civil war internally, but be very peaceful towards the outside world. 
or maybe only have some minor consequences to your neighboring countries in terms of refugees or something like that. Um, and that is actually the case for many countries on this on this index where they are doing really badly because they've got internal conflict, but not because they're aggressive towards the neighbors. Uh, so really it should be four pillars, separating international conflict from everything else. You now have an index that has way too many uh, variables to actually provide a clear picture of anything. Yeah, and I mean, to, just to read out some of the some of the data points that they're looking into, um, one of them is relations with neighboring countries. Okay, how are the relations of neighboring countries different from relations with non-neighboring countries? Um, because yeah, you might be very, you might be surrounded by very like-minded countries, <laughs> the European Union or maybe the United States, but then you have a very, very aggressive uh, foreign policy, well, maybe once removed, uh, you know, to the to the countries bordering your neighboring countries. Um, so so there's, there's, there's a lot of like very nitty gritty things I think that we could point out here. However, one of the main parts that uh, that is, is, I don't want to call it flawed, but it is at least difficult, um, is exactly uh, what you just pointed out, is that they are conflating internal stability with external behavior. And then at the same time, uh, they're saying uh, towards the end um, that they are weighing the internal stability higher than the external stability. And I just want to read out how they are phrasing all of this. And I quote, the overall comp uh, composite score and index was then formulated by applying a weight of 60% to the measure of internal peace and 40% to external peace. The heavier weight applied to internal peace was agreed upon by the advisory panel following robust debate. The decision was based on the notion that a greater level of internal peace is likely to lead or at least correlate with lower external conflict, end quote. That's a lovely internal robust debate, don't you think? Well, the, the, that exactly shows the bubble thinking of the people in this report, right? So essentially, they're begging the question. They're basically saying, if you are um, democratic, if you have uh, internal peace, we, we, we know that current Western democracies are internally peaceful, then that will make you automatically... Uh, more likely to be peaceful towards the outside world. That's an assumption that is not backed up by facts. Um, that is that is just a, an assumption. And it allows them to reduce, as they say themselves from your quote, reduce the behavior towards the outside world, weight that less than the behavior internally. So the result is that you have a West that is doing pretty well in terms of human development indicators internally, that is doing pretty well when it comes to their own society, that is very aggressive towards the rest of the world and still can be high up in that ranking because their aggression towards the rest of the world is weighted down in this index. Surely for most people, it should be the other way around. From most people's perspective, you're interested not so much in whether a country does well internally, that's for a different study. But if you talk about global peace and international peace, then what you want to know is, is this country actually being good towards its neighbors, being good towards other countries around it in a, throughout the globe? Or are they actually threatening violence or not? And yet in this, in this index, it gets reduced. It's, it's almost like a footnote uh, whether a country starts a war or not. So in the case of Russia, to go back to your Russia example, um, 
it's probable that the actual invasion of Ukraine in this index got less attention than other aspects, which is, of course, insane when you talk about peace. For me, it's their reasoning. Uh, actually, so their reasoning, if I follow that, I would lead, I would lead to, a, to a different conclusion for me. So if you're telling me that a greater level of internal peace is likely to lead or at least correlate with a lower external conflict, that means that I would want to give less importance to this and actually more importance to the external, well, to your external behavior. Because otherwise you're kind of like doubling down on basically an effect. So so that overall reasoning behind it doesn't make a lot of sense to me personally. Maybe I'm, I'm, the, I'm the only one here. Um, but yeah, I... I, I like you would you would want to ask yourself the question why what's the effect of putting greater importance on internal stability over external stability why why is that necessary and it it they they literally say it, it they believe that that is more important because they associate democratic peaceful societies with being peaceful as a general term and I am convinced if you were to ask a, a general uh, average person in the street, what do you, if I say to you, this is a peaceful country, what do you think of? You typically think of that country not invading other countries. That's typically your reaction. But they hear in this, in this index, they turn it around and they say, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to care less about invading other countries. That is not that, that big a deal. What we care about is whether you've got a high human development index, whether you've got your stuff in order internally. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? So what's the, what's the problem? What's the damage of all of this? Going back to the initial tweet that, that started all of this, um, your average person in the street who is already being bombarded by Western bubble thinking from everywhere doesn't know much about international relations in general, doesn't know much about foreign policy in general, thinks of themselves and their democratic country as a peaceful country, sees this tweet and gets confirmed in their own bias. They see a tweet where their country, let's say Austria, is number five in the rankings. And they get confirmed by the idea that Austria is a peaceful nation. And when a politician, a leader of their country says, hey, Austria is a force for good in the world, and therefore it's very important that we start a peacekeeping mission in Syria or in Libya or in Iraq or Afghanistan, the average person who just saw this tweet will think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because we are clearly scientifically proven to be a peaceful nation. Whereas the tweet that they just saw didn't say that. The tweet that they just saw said that Austria and Vienna uh, are lovely places to live in internally, but it actually has very little value in understanding Austria's behavior on the world stage. So the, the, the damage of this is that it continues the indoctrination if you like the brainwashing, to put it in dramatic terms, of people living in the West believing that their societies are a force for good in the world, that their societies actually are peaceful towards the rest of the world. Whereas in reality, this kind of index, this kind of thinking says no such thing, has no such conclusions. And the worst thing is that this 
aggressive foreign policy by the West, which, let's say, is to a certain extent justified by believing that the West is overall a force for good in the world, is actually leading to more damage and to more absence of peace in other countries. And I think the uh, best example was actually given by our good friend Simon Tistel uh, from the last episode, um, if the listeners remember, where uh, he wrote an article about, well, simply the effect of the U.S. war on terror, where indirectly 4.5 million people uh, died as a result from that. And I mean, some of these countries on this list that are very far down here are then those victims of Western intervention, uh, most notably Afghanistan and and Iraq. Yes, and what then happens exactly uh, in such situations is that these people who get bombarded by these tweets, they get bombarded by this kind of thinking of of their country being a peaceful country, um, allow their leadership to take that aggressive action because of that self-image. If they believe that their country had been overly aggressive and overly violent towards the rest of the world, they would find it much harder to accept their governments taking further military action. But because we're being told all the time that our countries are peaceful, as this index also seems to indicate, we're okay with our leadership continuing aggressive foreign policy action. We're okay with that because we're not critically analyzing, assessing our country's behavior on the world stage. And as a result, we are responsible for terrible, terrible destruction all across the globe. And what now? So in the future, should we then um, have better indexes uh, that measure maybe the actual foreign policy military aggression and maybe the excess deaths as, uh, as, as Simon Tistel did, more or less, in his last article? That, that would be absolutely a step forward, right? Disaggregating a report like this, not conflating internal well-being with external behavior because they're not related. Or if they are correlated, then it's probably in the, in the other direction. Uh, we know that Western democracies are quite aggressive on the world stage, more aggressive than most authoritarian regimes. Um, and so disaggregating it into, okay, let's analyze whether Switzerland is more peaceful internally than the United States. Fine, Switzerland will win that race. And at the same time, um, analyze whether Switzerland is more peaceful on the global stage than the United States. And again, Switzerland will win that race. But those two questions, even though in both cases, Switzerland is the winner here, in both cases, Switzerland will be more peaceful, that doesn't mean that it is the same question. Because if you ask that question about the Netherlands, and for example, um, take uh, whichever, take uh, China, for example, um, you will uh, have a very, very different index and result. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on peace. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? This is a quote from the great late Nelson Mandela, who said, To be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. <laughs>